Good morning. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We'll be, uh, start here in John 19, and then we will uh, move over to, uh, to Matthew chapter 27. Good to see you this morning. Lunch after, that's always a win, right? Uh, we got lunch after and Easter egg hunt. I, I don't know where the eggs were hidden, but I tried to make a deal with, uh, with Evie Holdfield. Actually, I think it was Emma. And I said, Emma, I'll find out where the, uh, where, where the eggs are, and I'll give you a head start, and then we'll split the chocolate on the flip side. And so then, but I don't, I don't know where they are. So um, I, I think I, I told her that. Uh, John chapter 19, good to, uh, good to see you um, this morning. We're in a three-week series right now uh, about, um, we call it the weekend, as we're, as we're next Sunday, we will celebrate the fact that Jesus um, did not stay dead, hanging on a cross or lying in a tomb. But our Lord is alive, and because he is alive, everything that he ever said about himself is absolutely true. He is the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he is the resurrection and the life. As you're going to John chapter 19, we met as a church last Sunday night, had our family meeting, and um, so our, our next point team that's been serving us uh, for the past several months, they presented to the church um, just in general what they would like to continue to pursue our church uh, voted to affirm them to continue that. Um, so as they continue to, uh, to develop uh, the future of our campus, some of those uh, plans uh, and, and thoughts are out there. So if you're a member of Crosspoint, I would encourage you just to glance at that. And I would say this also, Justin and I, as well as the Next Point team, we're available. Uh, if you missed that meeting or if you were at that meeting, you got other questions about it. Uh, small groups, we would love if, if uh, your small group would like to, for one of us, uh, to come with, with the Next Point team member and, and uh, engage with your small group further. Just, uh, it's, it's an exciting time. God, uh, God is moving our church in a lot of ways, and I was uh, super excited um, to, uh, to, to be part of that and see the congregation responding that way. John chapter 19, last week, Justin uh, laid out for us this first aspect of the weekend. When we think about the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Part one last week is what happened on Good Friday. And even last week and this week, every day we've been making a video uh, for you and we, as we've been reading what we're calling 14 Days of Easter. If you missed out on that, it's posted every day on our Instagram and Facebook page as a church. We're reading through um, Passion Week. This week we read through John. Starting tomorrow, we will read through the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Justin jumped in John 19 last week and we looked at how the death of Jesus was not random Jesus was not a victim. This was all the plan of God. And this is what God was doing to move his plan along. A portion of the weekend of the passion of Christ that we don't often think about or talk about is what happened late Friday and all of Saturday. When we're told what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then Paul makes one statement. And he was buried. And then he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A lot of times when I think of the gospel, I will, man, praise God he hung on the tree. And praise God he came out of the grave. But we kind of skip over the 24-hour to, to maybe a little longer period when the body of Jesus lay in the tomb and the circumstances surrounding that. Now, what's interesting is, there went my tribute to the seventh grade, I my voice cracked right there if you didn't catch that. <clears throat> I've been talking in a uh, 
Somebody said, what's wrong with you? Earlier this week, I said, I have pollen voice. So I'm still working through pollen voice. Uh, salute to you guys up there, okay? I was, I was trying to sound like you. Uh, made it through that, you will too. All right. Um, where, where in the world was I? All right. So we don't emphasize the burial of Jesus as, as I think we should. Anything that's found in God's word is super important. But when you find something in every single one of the gospels, it's significant. Like the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle other than the resurrection found in all four Gospels, right? Even the birth of Jesus is not found in all four Gospels. But the burial of Jesus is. And, and I think there's a reason when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, and he was buried, that there's something going on there that possibly we haven't talked about as much as we should. And, and that's what I want us to go to today is to see that the timeline in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but in the burial of Jesus, ticks right along according to plan. So you might get frustrated when the plan doesn't go down the way that you want it to. All right? So I've been trying to eat better, but yesterday was a cheat day. And it was a cheat day particularly because I found out that Dairy Queen has a dip cone, and they're calling it the churro dip cone, okay? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get a large, but I didn't get a small. I got a medium. And so I went yesterday, and, and, and this was my goal. I had, to, I had to come by here and get some stuff. I had to, uh, to get gas, and I was going to get my cone and grab some food and be back for the 509 tip-off for FAU and San Diego State in the Final Four. You know, if you're like me, I don't really care about college basketball unless USM's doing good. Usually I don't care about college basketball then. But, um, but I care about NCAA tournament. So I was like, I'm going to be back by 509. And so I, in, in getting to Dairy Queen, I got behind the four slowest drivers in Laurel. It's important for you to put a CP sticker on the back of your car occasionally because maybe people in this church won't honk at you when you're driving so slow. Okay, I did not get behind any CP stickers yesterday. I got behind the four slowest drivers in Jones County, and the ice cream machine started working, stopped working after I was in line. No fire escape in the DQ drive-through, right? So they, they fix, I was like, is this McDonald's? Like, what's going on? Anyway, um, finally got my ice cream, got back, missed the first five minutes. Oh, well. I just caught myself. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm, I, was, I was sitting this morning. I was like, we're, we're preaching about this divinely appointed schedule. And it's so obvious that God has a plan. Why in the world do I get so frustrated for eight more minutes waiting on my churro dip cone? Right? And I think one of the general takeaways of this entire weekend is that sometimes, most of the time, and Lauren needs to write this down and poke me in the ribs every time that it, this, this comes out of my mouth, that our schedule most of the time is not synced up to God's. It isn't. Either why things happen or how things happen or the time length in which they happen, things speed up. We don't want them to be sped up. Most of the time, things slow down. We don't want them to be slowed down. But just like practically, my mom, if she heard me share that story, what I just shared, she was like, well, Luke, God was protecting you from a crazy driver or a wreck or something else. And I'd be like, okay, you're right. Anyway, the point is, this weekend shows us that God's clock ticks at the right moment. 
And because it's God's clock, there's more important things going down than for me to get back by 5.09 for a tip-off. And so when we approach this, I want you to see specifically this morning, because Justin last week, rightly so, took us to the Father demonstrating all things, the Father planning all things. Let me remind you this morning that the Trinity never does anything outside of the persons of the Trinity. What I mean by that is, there is no action that the Father does without Son and Spirit being involved. There is no action that the Spirit does that is outside Father and Son. The unity of the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead work together in perfect unity. But we do find, as Justin brought out last week, there's parts of the Scripture that emphasize one person of the Godhead doing something, but then you'll see in other places of the Scripture, you'll see that while one person of the Godhead was doing something, the other two persons were doing in tandem, the same action. And I want you to see this morning from Jesus' perspective. So what we're going to do is, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw this up where we're headed. We're going to be in John, and I want you to see the divine sovereignty in Christ's burial in John. And what I mean by that is, put this up if you would, um, Bo, um, go past the scripture. Yeah, go past that if you would. I'm sorry. This is what I want you to see, that Christ specifically sets the events of his burial into motion and is in complete control over what happens to his body before he dies, and even after he dies. And then we're going to go to Matthew because we're going to see the handshake this morning. Remember the handshake between sovereignty and responsibility? We're going to see in Matthew that there is a human responsibility in Christ's burial. And what I mean by that is, you're going to see three different groups of people that unbeknownst, they can't see the invisible hand of God working, but they are responding to fulfill the divine plan specifically for Christ's burial. John chapter 19 first. Let's look at the text. We're just going to read 28 through 30 to start. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus is hanging on the cross. After this, Jesus, underline this phrase, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. I want you to notice a few things there as the scripture's on the screen. The Bible says that while he is hanging there, Justin last week walked us through the, the severe punishment of what was happening, physical punishment. He's been scourged, he's hauled a 300-pound crossbeam across the city, possibly because he kept collapsing under the weight of it. Simon of Cyrene was recruited, and he carried it. Jesus had been up all night. His, uh, he had been sweating blood under, under se- severe stress. His blood vessels were bursting in his, his forehead. 
He had been betrayed by a friend, all this crazy emotion. And on top of that, for the last three hours, he has been under the load and weight of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And yet, even in his last moments, he knows that everything's accomplished. I mean, you talk about like self-consciousness, like awareness. And so he knows that everything is finished. One more thing, I thirst. When he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Two of the Gospels have it this way. I think Matthew says he yielded. Mark and Luke have that he breathed his last. But Matthew and John here give us an insight to the final moments of Jesus. And when we see this, we're going to see how sovereign Jesus was over his final moments. The word gave up literally means to hand over, to to yield, to surrender to. And, And it's an active action here. It's not passive. It's, it's not something that happens to him. It's something that he does. If you walk up and hand me something, that's a passive action. If I walk over and get it from you, that's an active action because I took the initiative to get it. I wasn't the receiver. I was the giver, right? Here in the text, Jesus actively does something and he gives up his spirit. Now, I want you to see how all of this is flowing towards the burial of Jesus. And this is what I want you to see first. This is so important. Get this. Christ dies at the exact moment he intends to. Jesus dies exactly when he intends to. That's what Matthew means, as we'll get to Matthew in a few minutes. He yields up his spirit. He gives up his spirit. What this means is, in the midst of torture and pain and suffering and nearness of death, Christ says, okay, that's it. My life is over. And notice that he prolongs it for two reasons. Verse 28, to know until all the scripture was finished. And in verse 30, when the payment for sin was made. You want to know in God's reckoning how long it takes to suffer for sin. On the human side, it is eternity. The doctrine of eternal punishment was preached by Jesus himself. People do not go to hell because God is some cosmic, horrible tyrant. People go to hell because they sin against a holy, good God. And if you hurt someone on this earth, you would be sentenced to 50 or 60 years or even life. How much more if you sin and commit crimes against the giver of all good things? But because Christ is God, six hours on the cross, particularly three hours of darkness, is what it took to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. Not because God is evil, but because God is good. And so when all this is finished, it is finished. To telestize, what they would write on receipts when a debt was paid. 
after that, Jesus says, I give up my spirit. He said this in John chapter 10 as well. Jesus spoke all through John about his hour not coming, his hour not coming, his hour not coming. Then he says, my hour has come. Notice what he says in John chapter 10 that talks about this. John chapter 10, verse 17. It'll be on the screen for you. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Pause. No Jewish leader, no Roman soldier, no Roman governor, no executioner. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. How crazy is that statement? Jesus is saying, you know, when I die, when I choose to die. And when I'm dead, you know, when I choose to come back, when I choose to come back. Little teaser for next week. Who raised, who raised Jesus from the dead? According to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. According to Acts chapter 2, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But according to John 10, 18, Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. This is crazy. This is incredible. And Christ dies the exact moment that he intends to. Not a second before, not a second after. He dies when he intends to. Now notice, as we go back to John chapter 19, notice, we looked at this last week, but I want you to see it not from the cross perspective, but from the burial perspective. Notice how Jesus dying at the exact moment begins another countdown. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Justin walked us through last week. In order to expedite dying, they would take a mallet, they would crush the legs, you couldn't push up and breathe, and men would asphyxiate. They would hang and they couldn't push up and they'd die. John tells us also, they would call this the death stroke. They would send a spear into the side, it would penetrate the heart chamber, and that's why the, the fluid came out as it did. So this is like double verification. But they didn't have to do that to Jesus because he'd already died. But notice, just a couple things to point out, it was the day of preparation. And they didn't want the bodies to remain on the Sabbath. What I mean by that is, I want you to see the second aspect of divine sovereignty. Because it was mid-afternoon, the religious leaders rushed to remove the bodies before sunset. Now, what's the day of preparation? So in a normal week, there would be what they would call the day of preparation. This would be the day before the Sabbath. What's going on here? Jewish uh, Sabbath is what day? You know that. Saturday, right? So the day of preparation would be Friday. That's why, we, we most, that's why most people say Jesus died on a Friday because of the Sabbath. So if we interpret this, what John is saying, as the day of preparation, this is Friday afternoon. I'll just throw this out to you because anytime we, uh, anytime we, we teach the Bible, we, we want to uh, be faithful to, to what the Bible is saying. John does suggest, or if you read John a certain way, there are certain scholars that say that Christ didn't die on Friday, he died on Thursday. Now, I'll, I'll point out in just a minute why that happened. It, it, it's not a hill to die on, Jesus died, praise God, amen? And the reason for this is when you had the fact that a special day a week like Passover, a festival like Passover, when it occurred, then they would have like a double Sabbath. There'd be a special day, high day, and then a Sabbath. So this week, 
If John is saying that perhaps Jesus died on a Thursday, the special Sabbath would be on Friday, the normal Sabbath would be on Saturday, and so therefore, the day of preparation would be on Thursday. I'm just spilling it out there, just food for thought. That's all we're doing. Not, not trying to say this week, don't call it, I'm not, don't call it good Friday. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm, the, the point I'm saying is, is that the Sabbath was approaching, either a special Sabbath or the normal Sabbath. And we're told that about the ninth hour, this is when Jesus died. So Jewish day begins, the actual day part. The Jews operated on a 24-hour time schedule. For the Jewish day would begin at 6 p.m. And it would roll to 6 p.m. the next day, okay? So when we approach the Scripture, we can't take our Americanness into it. We have to say, okay, Jewish writer, what's he saying, all right? Now, in, in regards to daytime, day hours would begin at 6 a.m. and go to 6 p.m. So when the Bible says it was the ninth hour, what that means is 3 p.m. So, so check this out. What you've got is, because it's the day of preparation and that the bodies will not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, they've got to do something with these bodies, not the Romans, but the Jews, between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. they got three hours, three hours. And so what are they going to do? Now, why would the Jews say this? This is so crazy when you start thinking about it. The Jews asked Pilate, their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. There was a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the law that says this. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, we could give them the benefit of the doubt and say they didn't want the bodies of three men hanging on a cross when the Sabbath approached. And we can say, okay, they're, they're trying to get rid of the bodies. They're trying to bring the bodies down. We get that. I think... That there's also a second reason. I've read this also. No, this is on a hill. It's on a visible hill. It's in a part of the city where it could be seen. All these people in Jerusalem, two million people for Passover, you're about to have your high day. It's your nice, great day. Do you really want three rotting corpses hanging up as well? It's almost like the Jewish leaders create a fiasco in rushing an execution, and then they don't want the blood and gore of the execution to, to be the backdrop of, of, their, of their high day the next day. Kind of reminds you about like some people that are religious and don't know Jesus, didn't it? You know? They, they want everything so nice and neat. They want everything their way. And they create a bunch of messes. And then Let's just all make it go away. Let's get our way, and then let's cover it up. Let's get what we want, and then try to sweep it under the rug. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Notice what's happening. They get the bodies off the tree. Now, I want you, I want you to... Notice something here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. My wife sent me a screenshot this morning. She was in Deuteronomy 21. 
And I missed the context. I just was, had this in my notes. And the context for Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you read back a little earlier, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing how all this is going on in the eyes of God. Now, now check this out. Context of Deuteronomy 21, the previous verses talk about if you have a rebellious son that basically in our language punks his parents out, is rebellious, the elders of the city take that son, they take him outside the city, and they stone him to death. Okay? We don't follow Mosaic law that way. The general principle is if you punk your parents out, guess what? Either suffer in this world or if you live that life and you're full of hatred and you're rebellious, you're probably not going to heaven when you die. I found this contrast. Here we have, in John 19, not the rebellious son who's taken outside the city. We have the perfect son that's taken outside the city. We're the ones that deserve to be stoned to death. We're the ones that deserve punishment. But the blow did not fall on us. It fell on the one who was substituted in our place for our sin. We aren't cursed because he was cursed for us. So there's a rush. There's a rush to get the bodies off the tree. And that brings us to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. You gotta, you gotta understand what's going on here. So when a man was sentenced to death like this, the body was either, two things happened to it. It was either given to a family or it was just thrown in a, a ditch or it was thrown into a compost pile or it was just thrown out in the open because it wasn't just the fact you're sentenced to death. And this is what happens to those people that blaspheme or those people that try to be king and, and are a threat to the Roman government. You're, you're stripped naked, you're humiliated, you're hung on a cross and, and we, we kill you. But it's not just that. We're going to take your body off and we're just going to throw you wherever. You are just like the dirt. We will throw you in a ditch somewhere and the animals will feast on your body and your body will rot for the next several weeks and that is all that matters to you. But here, there's a guy named Joseph who asked for the body. It's very interesting that the prophecy in Psalm chapter 16 said that God would not allow his holy one to see decay. Now, now understand, he breathes his last at three. The Jews, we don't want this spectacle uh, as, as Passover is approaching. We don't want to break Deuteronomy law. All right, we got to do something with the body. We're going to kill the other two. Oh, Jesus is already dead. Deathstroke. Oh, he's, 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 his heart's burst. Here comes the fluid. All right, something's got to be having the body. We're just going to throw it. So the timeline's rushed up. All of a sudden, this student named Joseph Arimathea shows up, and he asks for the body. What's the big deal? Notice that Jesus dying the moment that he died created all of these things to happen. The reason why Christ was buried in a tomb was to fulfill the prophecies that had been uttered hundreds of years before. What were those prophecies? Justin mentioned one last week. I'll 
throw it up here for you. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 53, verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah, written 700 B.C. Now here's the thing. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. He died for the transgression of God's people. They made his grave with the wicked. That's what was going to happen to Jesus. He died with, between two thieves, and he was going to be tossed into a ditch with two thieves. But what was the prophecy? That there was going to be a rich man. And <laughs> there was going to be a rich man that intervened. Even though Christ had done no violence, even though there was no deceit in his mouth, his grave was going to be with the wicked, but there was going to be a rich man. Now, Jesus had already prophesied also earlier in his ministry. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Hey, we want to see a sign and, and we'll believe. What kind of sign do you want? I'm not going to give you just some little sign that you can turn around and throw back in my face, but I will give you one sign. Jonah was, went down in the sea in a Big fish took him in, and he was there for three days and three nights. And so guess what? This is the sign, just as Jonah was taken down, so the Son of Man will be taken down into the throes of death. But after three days, he'll come back. When you read Jonah, like read it that way, right? Like read the story of Jonah, but then see how Christ applies Jonah to himself. And this is what Christ says. Christ was thrown overboard for us so that the storm of God's wrath wouldn't hit us. He was taken down into the depths of the grave, and on the third day, he was resurrected awesome. There it is. And I should just add here, this is why Thursday proponents of Jesus' death, that they would say that, that a, a literal, a literal three days and three nights, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, that's just that, a literal fulfillment of the prophecy. How do you get around a, a Friday death? Well, the Jews sometimes would reckon portions of days to be days. So you have a portion of Friday, a portion of Saturday, and a portion of Sunday. That's just for, for you, a little, little take home, okay? We can talk about it later. The point is Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again, amen. But understand the fulfillment of prophecy means this. When Pilate gives Christ's body to Joseph, Joseph buries Christ's body, and it all happens before sundown. Talk about a to-do list. So what do we, what do we see? We see that even in Christ's burial, the clock is ticking right at the right time. And here's the truth I want you to get before we move to Matthew. Notice this. Notice this truth. Even though Jesus dies, he is in complete control of what happens next for his burial. Don't, don't you think that Jesus is really in control over your life and your death? If Christ can control <laughs> what happens even as he breathes his last, even as he goes into the tomb, God is sovereign. 
Sovereignty is a scary concept for some of us sometimes. We don't understand why things happen. We don't understand when things happen. We don't understand why and when things happen. But can we just affirm this morning that God's sovereignty flows from his holiness and his goodness? It's not an evil sovereignty. Listen to me. It's, It's not an unsympathetic sovereignty. It's not a blind sovereignty. Just as the persons of the Trinity do nothing outside of each other, so God in his being never does anything outside of his own attributes. God does not exercise justice without holiness. God does not exercise his mercy and his compassion and his grace outside of his righteousness. And that's why the cross is so amazing. It is where the love of God and the holiness of God meet. It is where the righteousness of God and the grace of God meet. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you're having to swallow the bitter pill that that things are happening and you don't want to believe that, that God is sovereign. And if he is, he's not good. Can I just tell you this? God's sovereignty flows from his holiness, flows from his love, flows from his goodness. We don't understand that. Now we see in part, then face to face. So think about this week. Think about what happened in Nashville. Think about that pastor, Pastor Scruggs, who's preaching today. I don't know if he's preaching today, but but he's a pastor of that church where where that massacre happened. And his own daughter was one of the ones that, that passed away. read this text and you know what it tells me? That God knows what it's like to lose a child too. God gave his son for us. He's near to the brokenhearted. Don't say that because God controls all things that he does so in a detached, uncompassionate, tyrannical way. No, somehow God even allows the evil that is perpetrated in this world, God allows it He permits it. He will judge the wrongdoer. But he's merciful to save the wrongdoer as well. And before we malign, and before we want our enemies to be judged, we must remember that we deserve to be treated the same way, and yet Christ was treated as the enemy of God that we might be welcomed as sons and daughters. This is the gospel. God will judge all the evil one day, praise God. God will judge cancer. God will judge dictators. God will judge sin. But right now, there's time for anyone who repents and believes, no matter what you've done this morning, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how much shame you may have, listen, the Son of God, sovereignly according to the the plan of God, was crucified in your place for your sin. You don't have to die in your sin because Jesus died for your sin. Let's go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. What's the, the human side? We, we see the burial happening perfectly according to God's plan. So awesome. Jesus dies a moment that he intends to die in order for his body to get off the cross, in order for his body to get in the grave, and to fulfill the prophecy that he would be buried by a rich man 
and so that he would be in the heart of the earth and fulfill prophecy. I want you to see the human responsibility. Verse 57 of Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb and went away. There's three groups of people in the burial story. Joseph of Arimathea, the Jewish leaders, and then some women that are mentioned in verse 61, particularly Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And I want you to see that, that these three groups of people respond to the burial of Jesus. They respond to the death of Jesus and are involved in the burial of Jesus, which on the flip side, guess what happens? They didn't see this unseen hand that was moving things according to the divine plan. Yet by their reactions, their actions perfectly fulfilled the plan of God. And let me just say this this morning before we look at these quickly. Circumstances reveal our heart. Circumstances reveal our loyalty. Circumstances, when things in our life happen and we don't understand why, what's exposed is what we love, what we treasure, what we depend on, and what we trust. And we see that in these three groups. First person we see is the guy we just read about, Joseph of Arimathea. And the way that he responds is that Joseph takes courage and shows loyalty. Joseph takes courage and shows loyalty. How did he respond to the burial of Jesus? Notice it says in verse 57, he was from Arimathea. People uh, don't know specifically where this is. Several scholars have pegged this to be the city, uh, the Old Testament city of, of, uh, of Ramah or Ramah. 15 to 20 miles northwest of, of Jerusalem, where the prophet Samuel was from. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It's given a long name there that I will dare not try to pronounce. But apparently he had moved to Jerusalem because he has a tomb just outside the city. This would be a pretty nice, close place for a tomb. So it suggested that he's a rich man, we're told in verse 57 is a rich man. When you start looking at the four gospels, let me just mention this real quick. You get this picture of Joseph, and he's mentioned in all four gospels. In Matthew, he's said to be rich. In Mark, he's said to be a respected member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the 71 members plus the high priest. So he was one of the religious leaders, the governor, uh, governors of the Jews. In Luke, it says that he was a good and a righteous man. Good, his character, or, or uh, righteous, his, his actions, his character and his actions were good and righteous. Luke also says that Joseph had not consented to the decision and action to execute Jesus. One of two reasons. Either he was present and did not vote for Jesus to be executed, or remember when it happened. It happened late at night, right? Joseph's not on our side. We're, we're not going to ask him to be there anyway. So it was either that he wasn't present, he found out about it later, or he was there in this hastily thrown Sanhedrin mock sham trial against Jesus. But Luke says that he was not connected to that decision. And then Matthew and John both add that he was a disciple. 
John uses it in the noun term. He was a follower of Jesus. But John says that he had not followed Jesus publicly because he had, uh, because of fear of the Jews. As There's also a mention in the Gospels that he was looking for the kingdom of God, which, which, which implies that Joseph was a spiritually uh, a, awakened man. He, he longed for the Messiah. He longed for the king, and apparently he had been exposed to the teachings of Jesus in such a way that he had become a secret follower. Now, now notice how Matthew describes him. It says in verse 57 that he was also a disciple of Jesus. Here in the Greek, it's actually used, this is pretty cool, in the verb tense, which you could take to mean that who himself had been discipled by Jesus. Not, not in the Peter, James, John, Thomas way. But what this means is, is that Joseph had, maybe from afar, maybe in a crowd, maybe hanging with the other Pharisees while they were ridiculing, he started taking in. He said, man, this dude is the Messiah. His, his teachings are real. I, I believe that he's the Christ. You obviously see what's at stake. Mark says it this way, Joseph took courage. There was no place to bury Jesus. He had no family in Jerusalem. He's from Galilee. They're going to take the body down. They're going to throw it in the ditch. And so what an opportunity for Joseph's faith in Christ to come public. Can I just encourage you? Sometimes, some, sometimes things happen in our life and God allows circumstances to come into our life because he wants us to be more bold in public that we identify with Jesus. This was the opportunity. It gave Joseph the opportunity to identify with Jesus. Now what's amazing is he goes on uh, as a member of the council, the guys that just condemned Jesus to death, he goes forward and he asks for the body. And in doing so, Pilate didn't have to get it, and Pilate's probably motivated, just let's get this out of the way. Let's just, there's probably the reason why he was a member of the council is why Pilate gave it. Maybe he thought Joseph was asking on behalf of the council. But this would mark a stark contrast to what, who Joseph had been before. I followed Jesus, but secretly now, hey, I'm putting my own neck on the line. I'm putting my own prestige on the line. And, and the Bible talks about the tomb that was laid. It says that Pilate, in verse 58, ordered the body to be given. And Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it, notice, in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Expensive piece of rock. Expensive way to cut it out. But because this criminal was going in, most probably it would defile the tomb in the eyes of the Jews, and so nobody else could be buried there. So in one moment, he sacrifices his prestige, his reputation, his name, his property, and his future gravesite in order to serve Jesus. And check this out. Other than, the three, other than the two Marys and the mother of James and John, there's no other disciple here. Even John isn't here. All the rest of them have fled. The ones that had talked a big game and then had, had chickened out, here's the guy who had been secret and had chickened out, and now guess what? He's emboldened. I was listening to one man this week, and Joseph is a reminder to us that even though some of you may have been timid in your faith, check this out, God will still show you grace and give you opportunities to be bold. Christians grow in different ways. Christians grow at different times. And sometimes we may have been timid and held back 
Let me just confess, sometimes as a preacher, it's easy to be bold here. <laughs> it's supposed to be. God to grant me boldness outside the pulpit. Outside the pulpit, we can be bold in sports and politics and culture. Be bold about the one thing that matters. Joseph was. Which begs the question, how far does your loyalty to Christ go? To death? Joseph was more loyal to a dead Jesus than we are to a living Lord. Something in Joseph's mind clicked. I'll go to Pilate. I'll ask for the body. I'll do whatever it takes. You know who we find in the Gospel of John that helped him? Old Nicodemus. Same thing. He came to Jesus by night. When it comes to the death of Jesus and there's nobody else, you start seeing who the real disciples are. And guess who showed up? The two guys that had been timid, the two guys that had been weak. And the Bible says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds. <laughs> Dude's got some money. This is the amount of spices to anoint the body you would use for a king. Joseph and Nicodemus respond in loyalty to Jesus. Secondly, the Jewish leaders show hypocrisy and hatred. If you look down at verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, a.k.a. the Sabbath. The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said while he was still alive, After three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Man, they are cooking with steam a day after the crucifixion, aren't they? Feeling right? Feeling good? Man, they're uh, hypocritical and, man, they're still full of hatred. This imposter, this deceiver, I don't know what he's got up his sleeve or what his, what his disciples have under their sleeve, but something's going to happen. It might happen, and guess what? We don't want another fraud to be done under the name of Messiah. I just want to point out their hypocrisy. Notice it says, after the day of preparation, they gathered before Pilate. John's gospel says on the day of crucifixion, they wouldn't enter Pilate's quarters because they didn't want to defile themselves so that they could eat the Passover. But now on the Sabbath, when nobody's around, when the mob's not present, when nobody can say, oh, look at y'all, guess what they do? They go into Pilate's quarters. They weren't supposed to go on either day. This is one of those attitudes, well, I can do it when nobody's watching. It really doesn't matter what God says about it. They didn't want to associate with Pilate when everybody was watching, but now they do. What's also interesting is it says in uh, verse 62 that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the chief priests were, uh, the leading at this time, they were Sadducees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees had a bunch of theological just uh, battles. Like Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, Pharisees did. Um, Sadducees didn't believe in angels and demons, Pharisees did. And what's interesting here is the only thing that unites them is their equal hatred of Jesus. They're going together. And they're going before Pilate. Straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. But it does kind of Beg the question, did they, did they maybe have a little doubt that Jesus would stay dead? So they went, 
And they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sealing the stone with wax, probably some notification uh, in Pilate's authority, don't mess with this. You know, this is a Roman official and, and the Roman soldiers were there. All I could say is uh, in verse 66, good luck with that. To be continued next week, right? But it does show us that when the rubber meets the road, the attitudes of the heart towards the person of Jesus are magnified. One of the most hypocritical places on planet Earth is South Mississippi, where everybody has a connection to religion or a generic belief with God. But when it gets down to the devotion and loyalty and love and worship and adoration and obedience and entrustment to the person of Jesus Christ, not to a system in his name, but to him, the person, we love sin more. We love prestige more. We love reputation more. We love money more. We love material more. We love what people think about us more. And so therefore, Christ is ushered to the back seat. Can I just say, here it is a stark contrast between one of the same dudes on that council, Joseph, another dude on that council, Nicodemus, who loved Jesus even when he was dead, and these men that hated him even after he had been killed. Well, there's a final group, and I think it's important for us to note this as we close. There's a group of women. And they're mentioned in verse 55 and 56 and then in verse 61. And they are a model of faithfulness and service. Verse 55 and 56. This is right after Jesus dies on the cross. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Now, let, let, me, let me draw this up, mention a few things. Verse 56 and verse 61, we're told Mary Magdalene was at the cross. We're told Mary Magdalene was watching Joseph and Nicodemus bury the body. Who was she? Luke 8 says that she was a woman who had seven demons and Jesus had cast the demons out. In Luke 7, there's a very sinful woman that comes and... and uh, is with Jesus and, and cries over his feet. And a lot of people think that's Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who had been touched and changed by Jesus personally. Verse 56, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This is the mother of James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus. People think this may be the wife of Clopas who is said to be the brother-in-law to Mary. John says that. So this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, may have been Jesus's aunt, Mary's sister, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, James and John's mom. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Mark has that, that Salome was there, and morning of resurrection, Salome was there. And, and, and I think this is very interesting. Here they are, it says in verse 55, they had followed Jesus from Galilee, meaning, meaning they, had, they had made the trip south. I mean, they, were, they had bought in. They were always ministering to Jesus. Luke tells us that they, they gave money out of their own pockets to make sure that the disciples and Jesus had the necessities as they traveled. Can't you picture that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, this is my nephew. Well, I, I know the, the birth story. He's not, it, it, I guess he's, I don't know what she thought about Jesus. He's my, he's my nephew, but, but he's the Messiah. You know, go figure that one out. And Salome, who felt so close 
to Jesus and said, I got a question I want to ask you. When you come in your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and your left? And here they are, watching the one they had put all their stock in, being wrapped in a linen shroud, being anointed for burial, and watching a stone shut in front. And they just, the depths of their heart, is it over? Is this it? And I, I just, I think they're silent, so they don't say anything. I was listening to Alistair Begg this week. He makes a real funny statement. He's like, why did they come back Sunday morning with spices? And it's probably because as women would do, watching these Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus as high and as respected as they are, man, those guys are doing a bad job wrapping that body. We're going to come back and fix it. Just like women, right? Polite, shy, light years ahead on stuff like this. But they came back Sunday morning, right? The honor they gave Jesus, the quiet faithfulness that they gave Jesus. You know what we'll learn next week? That they were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Because it's been said before, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. Of course the stone was rolled away. Of course nobody was in it. The writers of the Gospels are careful to note that they were sitting there watching the body wrapped. They were sitting there watching the body go into the tomb. They were sitting there when the stone was rolled away, and the text implies that they continued to sit there. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They knew exactly where it was. Look at the sovereignty of God. Getting Christ the body of Christ, into the tomb before sunset so that the prophecy will be fulfilled. Not just in the tomb, the tomb of the rich man, so that the prophecy will be fulfilled. And these three groups of people, just seeing what needs to be done, just acting out of loyalty and devotion. Joseph and Nicodemus, he's the Messiah. We're going to honor him in his death they don't understand what's going on. They just respond in the right way. The religious leaders, their hearts are drawn out. They continue to hate Jesus. They continue to be hypocrites. But here are these women that God, in a sorrowful Friday afternoon, as they wept by a tomb, God was preparing the witnesses, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus in about 24 to 36 hours. How good is God? How amazing is God? And in the same moment, we have these women who had given probably out of some of the poverty of their hearts, and they're there anointing Jesus with two rich guys because the gospel reaches everybody in between. So where do, we, where do we land this morning? How we respond to Jesus matters. How we respond to Jesus matters. Circumstances reveal our heart attitudes towards Jesus. How have you responded to Jesus? Isn't it amazing that even in his death and burial, with his body in the grave and the stone rolled in front, Jesus is still revealing the hearts of people. Because that's who he is. And that's what he does. As we've sung to him this morning as we've worshiped his majesty, as we've looked at his word, perhaps Christ has exposed your hearts. 
This morning, if you don't know Christ, if your trust is in someone else but Christ, if your trust is in who you are and what you're trying to gain in this world, or your trust is in your own morality, or your, your trust is, I can fix this, I can do this, can I just let you know that you can't? And so God sent down his son who can and who will and who will remain. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. Why, what can he conquer in your life? See a, a demon-possessed woman, what can he not heal in your life? See a rich man who realized the vanity of trusting in his riches, but the fact that Jesus alone satisfies. How have you responded to Jesus? But Christian this morning, why would you not afresh this morning say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, my little life is in your big hands. And if you can control everything, in your own tomb, you can control my life. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you have and continue to demonstrate your goodness. Even the darkest day in human history, the murder of God, was done to display grace and mercy and love to the world. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we see you taken down from a cross and put into a tomb that you're still in control. And Lord, it begs the question in our hearts, how do we respond to dark Fridays? How do we respond to sorrowful nights? How do we respond? Is our trust in you? And God, I pray you'd search our hearts this morning. That we know that Christ alone, that Christ alone heals us and forgives us and saves us. God, we do just thank you this morning. The stone didn't stay in front of that tomb very long. The same one that laid down his life took it up again. So Jesus, thank you that this morning we're not praying to an image or a tombstone or a memory or an idea. You are the living Christ. We worship you. Thankful that this isn't hype. This is true. And every word you've promised comes true, Lord. Work in our hearts. Take your word, work it in us. Empower us like Joseph and Nicodemus embolden us. May we be faithful and serve like these precious women. God, if we're just religious leaders, show us, God. Don't let us die in our sin and our religion and our self-righteousness. Just as you drew Joseph and Nicodemus out, draw us out too, God. Thank you for the burial of Christ. As we sit before the Lord, how's he spoken to your heart this morning? Maybe you need him. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you don't know this Christ that died and was buried and raised again. This morning you can know him. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Relinquish your trust in things of this earth and trust only him. Just a moment when we stand and sing, Justin and I will be at the back of the room. If you 
need to talk about the gospel and about Jesus and how you can know God, come grab us. We'd love to talk to you. Doesn't matter if you've never heard the gospel or, man, you're a religious leader. Come on. Let's talk. Christian, this morning, what an opportunity to come back before him and say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, my little life in your big hands. Celebrate him. Let's stand. Let's sing this. Daniel, you lead us and let's praise this Jesus.